Many of you, if you've known me for a little bit, would say that I get easily distracted bordering on being ADD. And that is very helpful at some times because it allows me to be very flexible and to adapt easily. It's also very difficult because I can't remember people's names right after I meet them. So oftentimes people think I'm just not caring about them. I just can't remember their names. And so if I've asked you 10 seconds after you've told me your name, what your name is, please, it's nothing personal. But um, one of the things, though, about being like this is it allows you to hyper-focus. And that means you get easily distracted, but when you focus on something, you can focus for hours um, and do things. So I can go to the putting green and putt golf balls for hours and concentrate on that. Another thing I do, which drives my wife crazy, is I like watching YouTube videos of people meeting celebrities who they don't know are celebrities. Um, it's just one of those little things, uh, people getting surprised. I don't know why, I just like doing that, but I can spend hours doing that. It reminds me of a story, and David, you'll understand, it was Pete Peterson. He's a guy from my uh, church I was at in uh, Mount Prospect. Pete Peterson recounted the story. It's sort of different than being famous, but you'll understand what I'm saying. Pete Peterson served in the military with Hillary Clinton's father. And so when the Clintons were in office, he found a picture of him with Hillary Clinton's father serving in the battlefield together and sent the picture down to the White House with a letter explaining what it was. He gets contacted by Hillary Clinton, giving him a personal invitation to come down to the White House for a personal tour. He asked if it was okay if he brought his two granddaughters. So Pete Peterson and his wife Joan went down to the White House. They are greeted at the front door, after you know the Secret Service, they do all the security stuff, but they're greeted at the front door by Hillary Clinton. And she takes them through, does the whole tour of the White House. They even take pictures in the Oval Office together, and they're having this great time. Pete Peterson is an older gentleman, uh, probably about 6'3-ish, distinguished-looking gentleman, and he's very fun-loving as well. Hillary Clinton asked him if he was anything else he would like to do, and he said, well, we were planning on going to the Washington Monument. And she said, don't worry, and she may talk to someone, and next thing you know, he's being ushered into a big limousine and taken down to the Washington Monument. They get to the Washington Monument, and they get out, and there is a military guard there that lead them right up to the very front of the line, bypass everyone, go to the front of the line, so there's this military escort for them. They get to the front of the line, the military people salute him, and then leave. So Pete Peterson's there with his wife and his two granddaughters, and he said all of a sudden the funniest thing happened, all these people started coming up taking pictures with him. They had no clue who he was, but they thought he must have been important. So they, and he said even People who didn't speak English were coming up, motioning for an autograph, and so he, was, he stood there for a long time. He's a fun-loving guy, so he just stood there signing autographs, and then once you do that, everyone thinks that you must be famous. And people had no clue who he was, and he's nothing, nothing famous, but he had a great time doing that. <laughs> the flip side of that is sometimes you're with someone who's famous, and you have no idea who it is. So I'm going to ask you to watch this short video clip, and hopefully it will illustrate this point. Did you hear the one about the famous violinist who played in a subway station and no one noticed? 
Well, it was a different story today, and Jeffrey Brown was there. It was a sight that almost no one watched as it happened, but gained much attention afterwards. A superstar of the classical musical world, Joshua Bell, playing in a metro station in Washington, D.C. in 2007, largely ignored by a few thousand commuters on their way to work. An article by Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post about the event or non-event won a Pulitzer Prize. Now 46, Joshua Bell has been performing in the world's greatest halls since he was a teenager. And he's recorded more than 40 albums, including a brand new one of compositions by Bach. But something about the subway performance captured the imagination of many and apparently of Bell himself. Because there he was earlier today at Washington's Union Station Metro. Now it's interesting, Joshua Bell played there, this is happened in 2007, you can watch the video on YouTube. Um, it's interesting, it was put together, I'm not sure if you could hear it there, he was put together this idea from a Washington Post um, writer. And Joshua Bell shows up there and he plays for 43 minutes. And if you watch the whole video, one person realizes who it is and she stands there and listens to him, but other people are just walking by. But if you watch the video in the back side, there is a little kiosk there that sells lottery tickets. And people are lined up to get lottery tickets. And so they're sitting there buying lottery tickets and they don't know that the guy standing over or playing the violin, and he was playing a Stradivarius uh, violin that they estimate was worth $3.5 million back in 2007. People were standing in the midst of greatness. They were in the presence of greatness and they didn't recognize it. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in your presence. We are in the presence of greatness. But so often, Lord, we forget and we don't recognize that you are with us. So open our hearts and our minds today that we would sense your presence in a powerful way and be transformed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to look at passage from Luke chapter 24. It's a story called The Road to Emmaus. It's a story that takes place on Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection. In the church calendar year, uh, today would be what we would call, it's the second Sunday after Easter, but we would call it the third Sunday of Easter. And so um, it's good for us to remember this story. Let me read this passage of scripture from Luke chapter 24. We'll start reading at verse 13. It says there, Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, which with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. 
One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we walked with, while he walked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. For the disciples, as they were walking along the road, it was a road of defeat. But with Jesus, it's a road of victory. Before, it's a road of defeat. With Jesus, it's a road of victory. So let me give you the context of Luke chapter 22. It's after Jesus has been crucified and then risen from the dead. It's that first day of the week. And they're walking along this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles away. And one of the disciples' names, these are, these are two of the disciples, but not part of the original disciples. This is part of a larger group, probably a group called the 72. And one of the disciples' names is Cleopas. And we don't know who the other person is, but many scholars think that it is his wife. And it's interesting to note that many scholars think that Cleopas is Joseph's brother. Joseph, who is married to Mary, the mother of Jesus, it would, is possibly his brother. And that would have made him Jesus' uncle. And so they're walking along, and Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you talking about? And they basically say, where have you been? Now think about it. Jesus, of anyone, knows exactly what has happened. Where has he been? He's been dead 
and then brought back to life. He has been resurrected. And so they say, don't you know what's happened to Jesus of Nazareth? And they are discouraged because they think they've been defeated. Because they thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They thought he was the one who was going to restore the kingdom like in the times of David and Solomon. They thought he was the one who was going to overthrow the Romans. And all their hopes and dreams were dashed. And Jesus says to him, don't you understand the scriptures? Now, it's interesting. Jesus just could have revealed himself to them and said, no, it's me. But instead, he shows them from scripture how the Christ was supposed to suffer all these things. And so he goes back in the Old Testament. He goes back to Moses and all through the prophets to show them that it's all about Jesus. And so Jesus is on this very road and he holds the best small group Bible study ever. And he begins with Moses, he begins in the Garden of Eden, and he goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the Exodus, Leviticus, he goes through all the prophets, and he tells them what it says. Now, they, these are people who would have studied the scriptures. They knew the stories, but they didn't understand. They didn't understand that it was all pointing to Christ, the Messiah. And so Jesus unpacks it for them. All the promises in the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. Everything is pointing to him. I've heard people say that we should be able to have an elevator speech. I always wondered about elevator speeches because basically in 30 seconds you're supposed to be able to sell someone something. But when I'm on an elevator, I usually don't talk to anyone. So I'm not sure why it's called an elevator speech other than you have a short time to be able to say something. But the idea is, if someone asked you, what is the Bible all about? And you had 30 seconds. A good answer is, it's all about Jesus. It's all about God reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. The New Testament points us back to Jesus as well. It's all about him. It's about creation, God's creation, then humanity's fall and rebellion, and then how God fulfilled his plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. And then it talks about the promised future consummation of all things. It's about God's grace, God's mercy, God's redemption. It's about broken, hurting, sinful people being rescued by God. It's about how Jesus saves his people. Now, I'd like to know exactly what Jesus said, but we don't know exactly what Jesus said to the disciples. But let me share with you a possibility. And this is from Sinclair Ferguson in his book called Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And so these are Sinclair Ferguson's ideas. He wrote... Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. Adam in the Garden of Eden failed the test and because of that sin affects all of us. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane passed the test and because of that he imputes to us his righteousness. 
Adam failed the test, Jesus passed the test. Jesus is the better and true Abel, who, though innocently slain, his blood now cries out not for acquittal or condemnation, but for justice. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfort of heaven, his home, and go out into the unknown and create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not offered by his father, but rather is sacrificed by his father. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love. Now we can say to God, we know that you love us because you did not withhold your one and only son from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him and sold him into slavery and used his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and God and mediates a new covenant. And Jesus is the rock in the wilderness. When Moses struck the rock with a rod, it gave water. And Jesus, God only gives us, meets our physical needs, he gives us living water that quenches our thirst for all eternity. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his misinformed friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they never lifted a stone to help. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk losing life, but gave his life in order to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm and into the deep so that we could be brought in. Jesus is a real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is a true prophet, he's a true priest, he's a true king, he's a true temple, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread of heaven upon which we are to feast. The point is, it all points to Jesus and how we are redeemed through Jesus. The Old Testament points us to Jesus, the New Testament points us back to Jesus. Now, I'm not exactly sure if that's what Jesus said to the two disciples there. I'm sure that he also included many of the prophecies that were included in Isaiah and the other prophets. But the scriptures point us to Jesus. And Jesus explained to them the scriptures that they had studied for so many years that they knew by heart, and now he opens them and they understand. And so it says in the text there that their hearts burned within them. John Calvin, a great reformer from the 1500s, wrote, This is what we should, in short, 
seek in the whole of Scripture truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, one would not find a single word mentioned which would not draw and bring us closer to Jesus. I heard a preacher one time say that whenever we read the Old Testament, we should ask ourselves two questions. The first is, what is this passage teaching us about God who redeems us? And the second question is, what does this passage teach me about me who needs to be redeemed? What does the scripture teach us about God who is redeeming us, and what does it teach us about me who needs to be redeemed? Now it's interesting, in the Luke text, there's a little bit of a mystery here. Jesus is kept or, or the disciples are kept from recognizing that it is Jesus. They have been with Jesus. They know who Jesus is. But somehow their eyes are shut so they don't recognize who Jesus is. And God, after a while, opens their eyes so that they can see and understand. And whenever we read the scriptures, we should pray and say, Lord, we need to see and understand. We need to see and understand. These people knew the scriptures, but they didn't under, fully understand that it was all about Jesus. And so Jesus then opens their eyes and they're able to recognize him, and then they understand. But are we ready to learn? See, the disciples, they were on this road, and it was a road of defeat and discouragement and despair. But Jesus turned that same road into the road of victory, of joy and hope. Are we willing to learn? Let me explain a little bit. I, um, as many of you know, like to play golf, but I also am pretty good at teaching people how to play golf. And I remember one of my friends, I, I played golf with him for a number of years, and he had a terrible golf swing. And we would go out and play, and he would always be slicing the ball to the right, slicing the ball to the right. Finally, after three years, he went and took a lesson, and the guy fixed his swing. And he asked me, why did you never tell me how to fix my swing? And I said, because you weren't ready to learn. If I had told you on the golf course what you're doing wrong, you would just have resented it. But once you were willing to learn, and sought help, then you could fix it. So often for us, until we're willing to learn, until we say, Lord, show us, teach us, we're not willing to learn. And when God opens our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and our minds, we're able to see things differently and understand things differently. And the first thing we're able to see and understand is Jesus. Who Jesus is, we're able to understand that Jesus is not just a historic figure, but he is the Son of God and our Savior who loves us and walks with us each and every moment of every day. The other thing, when God opens our eyes, we are able to understand the scriptures, to understand his promises and how to apply them to our lives. The other thing we're able to do is when God opens our eyes, is that we are able to see God at work in our lives. The question for us today is, what road are you on? Are you on the road of defeat and despair and discouragement 
Or are you on the road of victory with Jesus? It's the same road, but things look different when you are with Jesus. Today, what is it you want to see? Ask God to open your eyes. What do you want to understand? Ask God to make it clear to you. Now, I have to admit, sometimes I have found it very hard to see God at work in my life. But just because I can't see him or understand what he is doing doesn't mean that he isn't there. The problem isn't with God, the problem is with me. It's hard sometimes for me to understand what is God's plan for my life, but God is always there, just because I can't perceive it. But every once in a while, I need to know that God is there. And so, and I, many other people use this same term, um, you just need God to wink at you. You don't need God to show you everything, but just to have him wink at you. And so something will happen in your life, some circumstances are such that there is no other way than other than it is God at work in your life, and you know that he's there, and it's sort of just a little wink. And sometimes that's all we need. And in this text, the other thing is, we see that Jesus is the one who takes people from despair, defeat, and desperation, and he takes people from that place to a place of victory, joy, and hope. And I'm not sure what road you're on today, but what is the purpose of a road if it doesn't lead to God? What is the purpose of a road if it doesn't lead to God? What is the purpose of the road you are on if it's not leading you to a closer relationship with Jesus? Jesus has promised to be with us on the road. No matter what road you're walking to, he's promised to be with us. And so we should stop living as defeated people. And we need to start living as victorious people. A number of years ago, there was a book series that came out. Many, some of you may know it. it was called the Harry Potter. And um, they made some movies about it. And I think there's some theme parks as well. And um, when the last book came out in the series, how many of you have heard the Harry Potter series? Okay. And the other people, you know, it's okay for you to raise your, how many of you find it hard to raise your hand in church? <laughs> That's a joke. If you, yeah, okay, you'll get it later. I remember, though, I went, my, my wife went to the, I can't, it was Barnes and Nobles or Borders books, and went and at midnight to get the book at 12.01. That's when they were selling the book. So she went and got the book, and it was the final book in the series, and she brought it home, and the first thing I did was I went to the end. And she was so mad at me. She goes, you can't do that. You have to read the book. And I go, no, I just want to know, does he die or is he alive? People. I've read the end of this book, and Jesus is victorious. He is, in the end, he is victorious, and he shares his victory with us through faith. I've read the end of the book, people, and in the end, we win. Amen, amen and amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know of your love, to know of your promises, to know that you are with us no matter what road we are walking along. 
You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our journey better than we know it ourselves. And so, Heavenly Father, help us when it's hard for us to see. Help us when it's hard for us to understand. But help us, Lord, to remember that Jesus has been victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And in the end, you win. We want to be on your team, Lord. We want to be people of victory, and we want to share the love that you have with us with all people so that all people would come to know of your love for them. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.